All right, let's open our Bibles now. Uh, we're studying the life of David. We find ourselves in 1 Samuel chapter 25, and we're going to look as a text at verses 2 through 13. Our topic there is this. Nabal, whose name translates to fool, picks a fight with David, his future king. The title of our message, Everybody Was King Fool Fighting. It was so exciting. Anyway, let's, uh, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you for the word. It's uh, not the only thing we come for, Lord, but it's the most important thing in some ways that we come for because it, it is our guide, it is our life, it is uh, powerful, it reveals our heart, it uh, really moves us in all the other areas that we do come for, for our fellowship and our worship and all of that. It is all based on your word. And so I pray, Lord, that as we work through this interesting section, this uh, encounter between future King David and Nabal, that we would glean from it all that is necessary for life and godliness, and that we would be more like Christ for having been here this morning, having been exposed to your word in the power of your Holy Spirit. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agree said, Amen. You've got to love the Incredible Hulk. You remember the story from the comics. Dr. Bruce Banner is exposed to a high dose of gamma radiation. From that point forward, whenever anything gets Banner angry, he transforms into a giant, raging humanoid monster capable of feats of strength in proportion to his anger. As Hulk puts it, the matter Hulk get, the stronger Hulk get. He kind of loses his mental capabilities as well. Forget the movies where Hulk is like 15 feet tall. Lou Ferrigno is the Hulk, right? I mean, let's, let's be real. Anyway, long before the Incredible Hulk, there was David, the future king of Israel. We've seen his Bruce Banner side in his dealings with King Saul. Even though Saul was hunting him down, trying to murder him for no reason, David showed mercy to Saul by refusing to harm him when he had ample opportunity. He wouldn't even let his men lift a hand against Saul. But when a defenseless farmer named Nabal refuses to share the fruits of his harvest with David, David tells 400 of his men to gird on their swords. He vows to kill Nabal and all the innocent men in his household. David's going to be stopped and come to his senses by the intervention of Nabal's wise wife, Abigail. But before he is, we want to explore the interaction between David and Nabal and remind ourselves that even as Christians, there's a problem within us. We too hulk out in various circumstances. It's not the enemy without that we need to be fighting so much as it is the enemy within. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, your fight is not with the fool without who ignores God on his way to hell But number two, your fight is with the fool within who acts independently of God on your way to heaven. Let's take a look, first of all, at the fool Nabal. Now, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you know that there is a struggle going on within you. The Apostle Paul put it like this. This is my favorite description of what it's like sometimes to be a Christian. He says in Romans chapter 7, verses 18 and 19, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells, for to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do I do not do, 
but the evil I will not to do that I practice. Theologians engage in an ongoing, endless debate over exactly what is going on with this struggle. Some of them say that you only have one nature after you get saved, the new divine nature that is implanted within you. They say that the old sin nature is eradicated, it's destroyed when you receive Christ as your Savior. And what remains they call the indwelling principle of sin called the flesh. And so they look at you as a new creature in Christ. You have a new nature. The old nature is gone, but you still have this struggle with what they call the flesh, a propensity, uh, a principle of sin. Others say that the old sin nature remains within you and that the struggle is between it and the new nature. Now, I find myself sometimes referring to it as the flesh and other times as the old nature or the sin nature. I guess I really can't make up my mind. Uh, And over the years, you know, as I've gotten older, I've decided not to camp out on things that people can't resolve. Uh, It's when you're young, you think you're going to solve all the problems in the, you know, in the world and in theology. And and when you find something that people argue about, you think, well, I'm going to resolve that. Uh, And then you get older and you realize how stupid you were when you were young. uh, And you think, you know, if if smart guys have been arguing about this for centuries, I'm probably not the guy that's going to solve it. Uh, And so I'm not sure if we have two natures or if it's just the principle of the flesh. But what I am sure of is that there is a fight going on in my life at a gut level. And you know it, too. The things you want to do, you don't do. The things you don't want to do, you do. Uh, and, and this is where we struggle. The, uh, the importance of this episode in David's life is to show us just how dangerous is the enemy within. Perhaps that's why we first get a good look at Nabal. He represents the natural man, the man devoid of the Spirit of God, the non-believer. Nabal is who David was, in a sense, who we all are, apart from a relationship with God. He's the man with only one nature, the old sin nature, dominated by his flesh. And it's an ugly thing to behold. And so in verse 2, we looked at verse 1 last time we were together. In verse 2, now there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. And the man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. And he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. The name of the man was Nabal and the name of his wife, Abigail. She was a woman of good understanding and beautiful appearance, but the man was harsh and evil in his doings. He was of the house of Caleb. Now, from the description of Nabal, we would say from a worldly sense, he had it all. He had multiple land holdings. He lived in Maon and did business in Carmel. He may have had other things going on as well. He was not just rich. He was very rich. He had heritage. He had a name. He was like a Rockefeller or a Kennedy. He was of the house of Caleb, one of the truly great spiritual heroes in Israel's history. It says that Nabal was harsh and evil in his doings, but we would say or we could say from a worldly point of view that he was a shrewd businessman. And finally, Nabal had a trophy wife that he loved to put on display. Those are the things that the world treasures and values. If you were saved later in life, you are on a path to be like Nabal, 
You may not have described it quite that way, but Nabal was a hero of yours because you were looking to those things. I remember when I worked in the real estate industry, I was a title insurance salesman, and for a while, one of the motivators, and it may still be this way today with salespeople, uh, I'd go into real estate offices and the, and the agents would have pictures of the things that they uh, wanted to, uh, to purchase, uh, the material goals that they had. And so you'd go to one station, there'd be a, a yacht, you know, and, the, and they'd, they'd look at that and they'd think, that's why I'm working like a dog, uh, you know, and, and trying to get all these deals closed because I want to buy that yacht or that house on the hill or this or that, whatever it might be. Uh, it was always something material that they were working towards. And along the way, they were ruining their lives, of course. Uh, you know, married, divorced, leaving kids behind, li- you know, living carnally, getting involved in substance abuse and all that. But, but they had the boat to look forward to, uh, you know, and that kind of a thing. And, and uh, it, you know, that's the world. The, Nabal is the man of the world that the world values. Now, so we don't miss the spiritual point, it just happens that this guy's name means fool. Now, in the Bible, a fool isn't someone who is mentally challenged. He is someone, according to Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, who has said in his heart, there is no God. Now, the actual phrase in the Hebrew is simply no God. So the fool has said in his heart, no God, meaning that this is a person who actively opposes God, who says no to God. Uh, Verse four. When David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep, David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, go to Nabal, and greet him in my name. And thus you shall say to him who lives in prosperity, Peace be to you, peace to your house, and peace to all that you have. Now I have heard that you have shearers. Your shepherds were with us. We did not hurt them, nor was there anything missing from them all the while they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you, Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever comes to your hand to your servants and to your son, David. Now, David wasn't seeking a handout. We don't understand the culture uh, and the hospitality going on here. So let me explain it to you. This was a polite way of collecting on a debt. There was an arrangement between Nabal's shepherds and David's army. David protected the shepherds out in the fields from Philistine raiding parties. Uh, You know, Nabal was rich and he had all these holdings, but he didn't have an army. And the Philistines, as near as I can tell from reading about them in the Bible and in history, they just laid around all the time uh, until harvest came and then they would just come and take whatever they wanted uh, from the farmers because they really couldn't defend themselves. And so David, because he just happened to be out in these wilderness areas with an army of 600 men, uh, and you know, it's, they didn't have Walmart back then. That wasn't available until the second century. Uh, I'm sorry. But anyway, uh, and so it would be very difficult to find provisions and to uh, you know, take care of these 600 men and all. Uh, and so what they did is they kind of hired themselves out as as an army to protect the farmers out in the field. And, of course, David and his men, they loved to kill Philistines anyway. Uh, And so it was a win-win situation. And so when the harvest came, it was time for David and his army to get paid. Uh, And so David expected payment for having protected Nabal's 
prosperity. It's not pertinent to our topic, but I was reading this through again this morning. I wondered if Christians aren't protecting America's prosperity by our very presence in this country. Uh, It'd be a story for another time, but... uh, uh, you know, as much as people who are not Christians are trying to silence us and get rid of us and ridicule us and all of these things, I wonder what it's really going to be like in the United States when the Christians are gone, when the rapture occurs. Uh, as far as I can tell from reading about prophecy, the United States isn't in the Bible uh, in terms of prophecy, not as a prominent nation. Uh, my personal feeling, and that's all it is, is that our nation will be decimated after the rapture and we'll have to join with Mexico and Canada to form a North American Union to have anything going on. Uh, and so, uh, you know, uh, the presence of the church, as weak as it may be, as much as people like to criticize it, I believe the presence of the church uh, is uh, the reason that America still prospers. Verse 9, so when David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal according to all the words in the name of David and waited. Then Nabal answered David's servants and said, well, who's David? Who's the son of Jesse? There are many servants nowadays who break away each from his master. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to men who I do not know where they're from? Every year, Charlie Brown wants to kick the football. Every year, Lucy pulls it away at the last minute. Then one year, she executes a contract with Charlie Brown, agreeing to let him kick the football. He's excited because he has in his hand a signed contract. You know the story. At the last minute, she pulls it away, and he falls down just like every year prior. Funny thing about this signature, Lucy says, it was never notarized. Nabal was shrewd like that. He knew how to work the system. The agreement his shepherds had made was what we call a gentleman's agreement. Uh, It was based on our version of the handshake, as it were. Thus, when it came time to pay, Nabal acted like he had no knowledge of it. I don't even know what you're talking about. And David, who's David? He's a fugitive. On the one hand, Nabal might have been concerned that if he supplied David... Saul might hear about it and do to him what he'd done to the priests at Nob, where he ordered them slaughtered with their families and their livestock. On the other hand, he had undoubtedly heard of David showing mercy to Saul on multiple occasions. The best play for Nabal then, the worldly play, was to renege on the promises his shepherds had made. It seemed to Nabal a win-win situation. As we will see momentarily, it was setting up to be a massive lose-lose situation for Nabal. David was going to hulk out and kill Nabal along with every male in his household. So the question is, not so much for us, but uh, hypothetically, do you admire Nabal? Because the world does. He is the poster boy for those who say, no God. Which is why we all need to take a look at how the Nabals of the world are going to end up. In the intervening verses, we'll eventually see Nabal's wise wife, Abigail, act to honor her husband's commitment to David, sparing David from sinning and her household from bloodshed. All, however, was not going to be well for Nabal. Drop down to verse 36. 
Now Abigail went to Nabal, and there he was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. Therefore she told him nothing, little or much, until morning light. So it was in the morning when the wine had gone from Nabal, and his wife had told him these things, that his heart died within him, and he became like a stone. Then it happened after about ten days that the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. And so Nabal was at the top of the world. He was very rich. He was enjoying an unusual season of prosperity. He had just outwitted, so he thought, David, the man after God's own heart. He was definitely saying no to God on many levels. He was feasting, and it says he was drunk, which indicates that he was enjoying all the possible pleasures the world had to offer him. His feast was like the feast of a king. Seated with him was a beautiful woman, the envy of all other men. And then he had a stroke, and after ten days of terrible suffering, he died. And so it reminds us, what does it profit for you to gain the whole world only to lose your soul? If you are yet unsaved, you are Nabal. You're saying no to God, go ahead, gain the whole world. No one is stopping you. Until one day your empty heart dies within you and you become like a stone in your infirmity and you die and you pass into eternity. What then? It's certainly something to think about. Now second here in the remaining verses we're going to see that your fight is with the fool within who acts independently of God on your way to heaven. David had already shown remarkable spiritual restraint and control dealing with King Saul. You remember, we've seen these other studies, Saul from, you know, right after David slew Goliath and Saul began to understand that his being king was in jeopardy, he started throwing spears at him and then he plotted against him and he sent his armies against him uh, and, and he was hunting him down like a jackal in the wilderness. Each time that David had an opportunity, he refused to engage Saul in battle. And when he had the opportunity to defeat and kill Saul, he let him go for the sake of obeying the Lord and doing what is right. And he's been a tremendous example of restraint uh, and, and just walking in the Spirit. Now a farmer won't pay his debt and David snaps. I mean, he goes from zero to 60 just like that. Verse 12, so David's young men turned on their heels and went back. And they came and told him all these words. Then David said to his men, every man gird on his sword. So every man girded on his sword. And David also girded on his sword. And about 400 men went with David. 200 stayed behind with the supplies. Remember now, Nabal and his men were defenseless. Was it really necessary to take 400 fighting men? It was even worse than that. Look at verses 21 and 22. Now David had said, Surely in vain I have protected all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belongs to him, and he has repaid me evil for good. May God do so, and more also, to the enemies of David, if I leave one male of all who belong to him by morning light. Really? He's going to kill every male member of Nabal's household? It is a very extreme reaction. And I think it shows us just how powerful the flesh, the old nature can be. And how it's 
always there, seemingly dormant, but ready to uh, come to the surface. And so it's, a, it's a really a stunning contrast. David walking with the Lord, sparing Saul's life, a man who's actually trying to kill him, who, who you might even justify the, you know, I'm going to kill him first or let's go ahead and, and duke it out. Or how about mano y mano? We just go one against the other. I mean, you, you'd even say, OK, uh, but there's a spiritual sense that you think, no, that wouldn't be right. That's not what the future king of Israel should do. That's certainly not what God intends. David, what a beautiful example of the spiritual man loving his enemy and and returning good for evil. And then he doesn't get paid. And he says, I'm going to kill him. I'm going to kill everybody. And he says that it's justified. He calls upon God and he says, God, you know, you, you see what he did to me? Well, I'm going to do worse to him, uh, you know, and I'm going to invoke your name in it. It's, it's like the Incredible Hulk. It's like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Where did that come from? It comes from the flesh, the old nature. David had been wronged, but he was wrong in his reaction. It was carnal. It was fleshly. It was sinful. What ought he to have done? Let's answer that before we move on. Maybe nothing. In the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians, believers are encouraged to resolve their disputes privately or at least among other believers. If the disputes cannot be resolved, rather than letting them spill over into the world, we're encouraged to be defrauded. Suffer the loss for the sake of the testimony of Jesus Christ. Maybe David did have a play this is just something I thought of. I'm not sure if, if it would be godly or not. It doesn't seem ungodly. But all he really needed to do was let Nabal know that he was going to withdraw his army and no longer protect his shepherds. I mean, after all, the harvest was still going on. Uh, the shearing was still taking place. Uh, maybe word would slip to the Philistines somehow that David wasn't going to do anything if they came against Nabal. Uh, after all... Nabal was a shrewd businessman. It might have stunned him to his senses. At worst, David would suffer the loss of wages for a season. But I think he knew that God would ultimately provide for him. This entire situation seems designed by God as a test for David. And he initially fails. With the help of Abigail, he would succeed and return to his best spiritual self. Meantime, we see David seething. Recognize yourself? Well, sure you do. It's exactly what we look like when we give in to the flesh and express the old nature. Doesn't matter how we justify it or call upon the name of God. Doesn't matter that our friends say, yeah, that, you know, they wronged you and, and so you should wrong them back because that would be fair. It's an eye for an eye after all, isn't it? And we sort of forget uh, you know, that we're Christians almost for a while because the flesh takes over. And it's usually in a situation where we can, uh, uh, which usually a situation that is a small situation. We, we, we have victory in these huge areas of our life and then something small happens and we go crazy as it were. We're wrong when we react that way. Better, spiritually speaking, to be defrauded or to suffer the loss, to love our enemies and to do good to them. Better to go on expressing our new divine nature in the energy and empowering of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Your flesh, your sin nature, however you prefer to describe it, will never get any weaker. 
It's always there waiting to rear its ugliness. Now, we have the promise of God that if we instead yield our members to obedience, we need not yield them to the flesh. There's a choice that we make in these situations. Situation comes up, we're wronged, mistreated, whatever it might be. We can choose how to react. We can react spiritually as David did with Saul. We can react carnally as David did with Nabal. Same guy, two reactions. You and I, same person, two reactions. We're really talking about, in a bigger sense, the biblical doctrine of sanctification. The basic meaning of the verb sanctify is to separate or to set apart. Sanctification, then, is this sovereign act of God whereby He sets apart a person, a place, or an object for Himself in order that He might accomplish His purpose in the world by means of that person, place, or object. Sanctification is not the improvement of the old nature, nor is it the eradication of that nature, thereby rendering it impossible for a child of God to commit sin. Sanctification is not a single act either, but a continuous process. The work of sanctification in the believer involves victory over sin as I make choices every day. Now, we understand sanctification in terms of three stages. I think you'll easily follow this. It's not difficult at all. First, there is the initial sanctification that occurs when you are saved. God saves you, and part of what He does is He sets you apart for His glory. This is sometimes called positional sanctification because you have a new position uh, with God. It is the fact that you now belong to God and that he who began this work in you will definitely complete it. Now, speaking of completing the work, ultimately there is final sanctification that occurs when you go to be with the Lord. This is sometimes called perfect sanctification or glorification. It occurs when you are no longer in your mortal body. Because the problem we have, whether it's called the flesh or the sin nature, it has to do with these bodies that we have right now. Uh, and, and when we go to be with the Lord through death or through the rapture, then we will no longer have that struggle within uh, and we will uh, have perfect sanctification or glorification. We will be unable to sin. Between our new position in Christ and where we're headed there is what we call the practical day-by-day sanctification. This is where we live. It involves personal responsibility. It's a matter of choice on our part. As long as we are in these bodies, we are able to sin, but because of the indwelling Holy Spirit and our new divine nature, we are also able to not sin depending on our choices. And so you see this in David. David could have reacted Either way towards Saul, he could have reacted either way towards Nabal. Towards Saul, he chose to be the spiritual man, walking in the spirit. Towards Nabal, he allowed himself to fall back into the ways of the flesh, justifying it, calling upon the name of the Lord, um, but still it was wrong. And so we have these choices to make. For example... In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, we read, This is the will of God, your sanctification, abstain from sexual immorality. And so Paul the Apostle says, on a practical level, if you want to practice sanctification, you need to abstain from sexual immorality. You have a decision to make. You can engage in it. You can abstain from it. That's up to you. Your flesh wants to engage in it. 
Your old nature is delighted by it. But the Holy Spirit of God is telling you that you don't need to do it and you have the power to say no. Hebrews 12:14, pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And so on a daily basis, we are to pursue holiness. We're to make choices that are consistent with who we are in Jesus Christ. Now, this practical sanctification is thus a process. As you read in Philippians 3, 12 and 14, Paul writes and says, Not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And so Paul understood that his life was a journey towards perfection. Not in this life. We would be perfect when we're with the Lord, but now in this life, we are able to choose whether to walk with the Lord in the power of His Spirit or whether to walk according to the flesh and fall back into that. And sadly, I think sometimes that the longer I'm a Christian, the easier it is to fall back into tiny fleshly habits, not big ones. You think, well, I've got that under control. I've, I've, you know, that's beaten that down every day. But then there's all these little areas. Don McClure tells a story about Alan and Marjorie Redpath. Some of you are familiar with Alan Redpath's writings. If you're not, you need to get anything Alan Redpath has uh, written and read that. He's a fantastic expositor of of the Bible. And they were there with the Redpaths in England, having dinner with them one night. And after dinner, Marjorie got up and she started clearing the table. And she asked her husband, Alan, if he would help her. And he said to her, pretty much just like this, I'll help you in just a minute. I want to finish talking to Don right now. Uh, And then Marjorie went on, clearing the table. Alan and Don and Jean McClure went into the other room. And it wasn't a couple of minutes that he excused himself to Don and Jean, and he went in and apologized to his wife for the harshness of his tone towards her. Because he knew in his heart that he had been harsh to her, even though no one else understood that. And, And I always use that illustration because what it shows us is that the Christian who is walking in practical sanctification is becoming more and more sensitive to things that you wouldn't even have thought of were sin a year ago. Attitudes and and positions of the heart. Not so much actions, really, as attitudes. When you raise your children, right? Some of you have raised your children. Some of you are still doing it. Attitudes maybe are more important than actions. If you're not disciplining your kids for their attitudes, you should be. Because their attitudes lead to their actions. And as Christians, sometimes we gloss over our attitude. Like, I'm, I just, I'm in my flesh here on the freeway. I'm in my flesh over here at the store. Certainly when I'm talking to somebody about tech service, uh, you know, then I'm totally in my flesh. But I've beaten all these big areas, so I, I don't really need to worry about that. I think we do. Because that is just as Nabal as anything else. What is our responsibility? Let me quickly give you five things to consider and then we'll be done. First, God's word is the active agent the Holy Spirit uses to accomplish practical sanctification. The psalmist writes, how can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. Second, know and reckon on the fact that you are dead to sin and self. Romans 6.6 6 says, know this, your old man, the flesh, the old nature is crucified with Christ. That means it's dead. You need not yield to it. Third, yield your body to God. 
First Corinthians six nineteen and 20 says, don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You're not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Fourth, surrender your will to God. Ephesians 5.17 says, Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And then fifth, walk in the spirit. Galatians 5.16 says, I say then, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Nabal is who you were. David is who you are. But which David? That's up to you. We see in David just how quickly we can yield our members to sin. Doesn't matter how mature you are or think you are. Doesn't matter how long you've been a believer. The flesh, the old sin nature is always there ready to reveal itself. Sometimes, as I said, it's the smaller things that incite it. Guard your hearts. Be David at his spiritual best. Pity the Nabals who are on their way to hell. You are on your way to heaven. 1 John 3, 2 reads like this. Beloved, now we are the children of God. It has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. We shall see him as he is. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these things. They're so precious, Lord, and, and so wonderful uh, to behold. Uh, it's, it's, uh, oh, we see this, this duality, as it were, in our lives every day, Lord. And it's interesting to see it in David uh, it, it, the two ways that he could have gone and uh, how easily, Lord, he gets into the flesh. And I pray that you would make us every day a little bit more sensitive to sin, not in a legalistic way, Lord, but in a way that uh, expresses love. Because, uh, you know, Lord, we don't want to be, uh, we don't want to be Nabal at all. It's not healthy. It's not helpful. It's not edifying. It's not doing anything, Lord, but destroying. We want to be David at his best by yielding to you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.